Good morning. I'm glad to be here uh, with you. But uh, before I get started, a couple words. I am under the weather. Uh, I, I apologize. I had a very rough night. And uh, so I'm glad to be here. You will see Gatorade. This is kind of weird. I usually have water, uh, but I need to get some of this in me for uh, strength and uh, rehydration. And this is a bit short. Doug, may I have your help here for a second? I just want to bring this up if I can. It is on the short side for me. All right. That's good. I like it high. Thank you, Doug. All right. So we're going to try to get through this together. And if I just pass out, someone please come and do something. (laughs) Maybe Doug can finish my message if I pass out or Merle or someone. All right. Well, I tell you what, before we get started, let's pray because I need the spirit to move here. Father in heaven, thank you that we can be here and thank you for sustaining us through the week. I pray, God, that our hearts will be in tune with your Holy Spirit, that he will be working in us to comprehend what you have written in your Holy Word. This is a a joyful message, an important one, one that is at the center of the gospel, and I pray that we can uh, submit to it and be joyful in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in 1984, Randolph Arledge was convicted of murder and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Earlier this year, the New York Times reported that Randolph Arledge, now 58 years old, was released from a Texas prison based on DNA evidence. They found a hairnet uh, in the victim's car, which cleared him of his crime. Could you imagine how that would feel? to spend all that time in prison and be released. DNA was Randolph's justification. The proof needed to be declared innocent under the law. Now, I don't know whether he did it or not, uh, but the law now considers him righteous. Randolph had DNA. What do you have? What makes you righteous before God? It is amazing to me how many people believe they are pretty good and therefore uh, justified before God, accepted by God. They use themselves to justify themselves. Pastor Mark Driscoll explains how both non-religious and religious people do this. This is what he writes. Irreligious self-righteousness includes the attempts to justify one's decency through everything from social causes to political involvement and being a good steward of the planet. Religious self-righteousness is the pursuit of personal righteousness through our attempts to live by God's laws in addition to our own rules. End of quote. Can your fight against poverty justify you before God or your community involvement? Does your reading of the Bible or church attendance or Sunday school attendance make you right before a holy God? When we point to anything other than Christ as the reason for God accepting us, we lie. And we communicate to Jesus, you are not good enough. I am good enough. 
when we rely upon our own good works. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same wooden nickel, as I said last week. Last week was repentance and today is faith, and specifically how God uses faith to justify sinners under the law. So the question of the day is, what is saving faith and how does it justify the sinner before God? What is saving faith and how does it justify the sinner before God? After all we've done, how can a holy God look at us and say, you are righteous? How can that happen? Well, what is saving faith? Let's define it first. Uh, first. Faith is easily misunderstood. Jerusalem Church's history goes back to the German Reformed Church and the Heidelberg Catechism. How many of you have heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? All right, most of you. Well, uh, it's one of the most famous catechisms ever written, and the answer to question 21 defines true or saving faith like this. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. That is a huge statement. There's a lot in there. So let's just slow down a little bit and work through it and break it down. True faith is a sure knowledge of biblical truth. Faith is knowing the Bible and believing it is God's revelation, and therefore it's totally trustworthy. Faith is wholehearted trust. It's putting all of your eggs in the basket of God's word. Trusting with full confidence in what he has communicated to us. Faith is created by the Holy Spirit in us. Now, we're going to see more of this later, but faith is a gift from God that the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts. Faith is given freely by God's grace. God doesn't have to give faith, but because God is loving and merciful, He gives it freely. All we do is receive it from God. Faith is accomplished by Christ's merit. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation are all earned by Christ, not us. We need only to trust in what Christ has accomplished. Sometimes Hebrew poetry uses uh, something called an acrostic. If you're familiar with it, it might go down the, well, Hebrew is backwards from what we read it, but it might go down the left side of the column and there's a letter and then from those letters... Um, you have uh, uh, the, the meaning of something that, that it wants to communicate. First, an acrostic that helped me. This is something I want to pass on to you. It greatly helps me. And then we're going to handle two questions. Does God really call everyone to have faith in Christ? And is faith really a gift from God? Those are the two questions, but after the acrostic. So here's the acrostic. Kate. Kate. K-A-T-E. To have saving faith is to K, no. Faith starts by being aware of what the gospel actually teaches. We can't have saving faith if we are ignorant of the truth. Who God is, uh, who we are, who Jesus Christ is, the cross, the resurrection, forgiveness, 
and so on. We must know the truth. Romans 1.31 says sinners know God's decree. And Romans 1.18 says people suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So every sinner is aware of God's truth. They see it in the universe. They see it in the scripture. But it's only to a certain extent. People need to hear the details of the gospel in order to be saved. Creation's not enough. They have to know the person and work of Jesus and what he has done in order to have saving faith. Paul said in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith begins with the hearing of the gospel. You have to know it. A, assent. Assent. To assent is to agree with the gospel. Yeah, I I agree that that is true. I agree that's how it happened. Do you agree that three plus three equals six? I hope you do. And if you do, you assent correctly that the answer is six. We don't have saving faith unless we agree that the gospel is true, that Jesus has raised from the dead, that he did die on the cross in the place of sinners. And even demons do this. Satan and his posse are all really excellent theologians. James wrote, even the demons believe and shudder. In Matthew 8, 29, the demons address Jesus as the Son of God. They know who Jesus is. They know these realities. Demons have a certain faith, but it stops at agreement with the facts. And so many people do the exact same thing. It just stops with the facts. Jesus described people in Matthew 13, 20, and 21 that received the truth joyfully. They were happy to get the truth. Yes, there it is. That's the truth of Christ. But then they give up. This is what he said. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He agreed for a time, but he never had saving faith because saving faith endures. He he only assented to it. T, trust. Saving faith puts all confidence in Christ. Uh, It's the kid on the playground who uh, considers his situation, and and he knows, I'm not winning this fight. But I know my older brother will, because he's bigger and faster and hits harder. So he knows, I trust my big brother. To trust is to be confident with Christ and what he is able to do. The NIV translates Jesus' words in John 14, 1 as, trust in God, trust also in me. Trust is the same word in Scripture as believe, to believe. True belief, true faith is personal trust in Christ. The bride trusts the groom when she lovingly says, I do. She has confidence in him, and she loves him, and she trusts in him. E, the last one, E, enjoy, enjoy. Saving faith is enjoying the truth and finding pleasure in it. 
I don't believe you can truly trust Christ to have saving faith unless you enjoy the person and work of Christ and all that he has accomplished for you. If Jesus is just ho-hum, if he's boring, you know, the feathered-haired hippie that wore a dress, eh, he's all right, I guess. I don't think that's saving faith. I think it's to delight in him and to treasure him and to savor him above everything else. Psalm 34, 8 commands that we enjoy. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Saving faith tastes and relishes in the goodness of God. Psalm 119, 103 sings, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Enjoy the gospel. Enjoy what it is for you and don't self-destruct because you refused to love the truth like Paul mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. Saving faith is knowing, assenting, trusting, and enjoying God. Have you done that? Have you done that fully? Remember the guy who found the treasure from last week? In the field, he, he wanted to buy the field. It's in Matthew 13, 44. He's, he's walking along and he's, whoa, there's a treasure. There's gold in the field. And so he's looking around. He covers it up. And he says, how can I get this? I got to get this treasure. And I know that if I buy the field, I can get the treasure. I don't, I don't have enough. I can't buy it. I don't have enough, wait a second, if I sold everything, if I sold the house, if I sold the car, if I sold all my barns and livestock, if I just sold it all, then I think I would have enough to buy this field and I could gain the treasure in the field. And so he joyfully runs. I don't know where he went, but he he went and, and he sells everything that he has. And he's got the cash and he goes back and he buys the field joyfully. He didn't look back. He didn't look at the stuff that he had and said, I wish I could have kept the Bentley. No, he sold the Bentley. He sold the Porsche. He sold the house in order to get something that was more valuable to him than all of the things that he had before. That's a picture of saving faith because he trusts that the treasure will do more for him than what the old possessions ever did. The buying is the confidence and the trusting. That's a picture of saving faith. Now to the two questions I asked earlier. Does God really call everyone to have faith in Christ? Yes. Through the gospel, God lovingly invites everyone to trust in Christ for salvation. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, God says in Isaiah 45, 22. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. God is calling to you, Jerusalem Church, to come and believe. But John sixty. I'm sorry, John 6, 44 says, no one can come unless the Father draws them. No one can come unless the Father draws them. So is faith a gift of God? Is faith something that God uses 
to draw us. Probably the most famous answer comes from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul means a gift saved you. A gift For by grace or for by a gift you have been saved. Now how did the gift come to you? Paul says through faith. But maybe faith is something we do on our own apart from God. Well if it is, there's a problem. There's a problem with that. Um, Paul said, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. The origin of saving faith is God. And if we boast, we must do as the scriptures say, to boast in the Lord. God activates faith. And there are other places in scripture that say this. Look at Acts 13.48 in your inserts. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God appoints people to eternal life, and then they believe as a response to the appointment. What about Acts 16, 14, where the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul? God opened her heart in order for her to believe the gospel and then be baptized. Later in Acts 18, 27, Luke recounts how Apollos taught accurately about Jesus, and upon arriving in Achaia, he helped those who through grace had believed. It was through a gift from God that activated the faith in their lives. Have you ever noticed that one of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22, pretty popular text of Scripture, one of the fruit is faithfulness. Now, I, I never saw this before until this week. It hit me. When I looked at the Greek word and noticed that's the same word for saving faith. Same word. And so when we know that faithfulness or saving faith is a fruit of the Spirit, we know that the Holy Spirit grows fruit, the fruit of faith in us. Add Philippians 1.29 to the whole equation. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So belief in Christ and suffering are granted to us, given to us. The Bible tells us faith is a gift. And the Bible also says negatively what faith is not. Namely, a work that we do. Something that we can somehow go to work and earn acceptance from God. That's, the Bible specifically talks against this. Some people see faith primarily as a human-initiated thing rather than God-initiated. And the problem with viewing faith in this way is that it transforms faith into merit instead of grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by something we do or add to it. Look at Romans 3.28. It says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We can't do it. We can't do it. Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is being extremely clear here. You can't work to be justified by God. It comes to you as grace. It comes to you as a gift. Now, I admit, this is complex. This can get people riled up. This can be a point of controversy and contention, but we don't need to worry about any of that. We just need to look at the scripture and say, God, what did you say? Help me to understand what you said. It's a mystery, but the Bible is clear that God calls everyone to repent and believe, and yet only God can give that repentance and faith. Robert Raymond, greatly respect this man, He wrote, if God were to permit the intrusion of human works into the acquisition of salvation to any degree, salvation could not be by grace alone. Salvation by grace and salvation by works are mutually exclusive. They're separate. Whole different way of viewing things. Way different. Way apart. Totally different ideas and concepts. When you tell your salvation story, is the emphasis on you choosing God or God choosing you? What does amazing grace mean but that God takes the initiative to give His amazing grace to us? Yes, God gives us faith, but the faith is also our responsibility and something we exercise in Christ in response to the grace of God. It's not how somehow uh, God's faith, it's our faith, but he gives it to us as a gift. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jerusalem church, you need to believe. And if anyone refuses that, they can't wag their finger at the holy God and say, you didn't give me the gift. No. The rebellion to turn away from God is the cause of unbelief and refusal. We have that on our shoulders. If we turn away, we can't blame God. We are accountable for rejecting the gospel. In 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12, Paul wrote to pursue faith to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Though God gives us faith, we are nonetheless called to pursue faith, to fight the good faith. Now, why does all this matter? It sounds kind of theological, doesn't it? You kind of have to hang with this. But, But why does it matter? One reason is that I believe it's possible that some of you misunderstand what saving faith is and therefore don't have it. That's possible. I don't know all of you close enough to know whether that's true or not. Many people in our culture claim faith. You'll hear faith all over the place. But in reality, they trust in their own works and their own ability to work their way back to God. I don't want you to misunderstand this. This is critical. It's critical to our church and it's critical in eternity. I want you to have authentic, vibrant, real faith in Christ. And I want to see that faith grow and be built up. 
The prayer of every heart at Jerusalem should mirror the desperate plea of the Father in Mark 9, 24. I believe, help my unbelief. I trust in you, Christ, but help when I don't. And the tax collector, can't forget the tax collector of Luke 18, 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the, the prayer of the sinner. Have you prayed for the gift of faith that God would grant it to you? Try it. Pray for it. For the rest of the time, I want to focus on justification by faith alone. It's like theological oxygen, the air you got to breathe, or else it totally takes everything out of, of Christianity. We need to breathe this. Justification answers the question, how does saving faith justify someone before God? Many years ago in the 16th century, the gospel was veiled by theological corruption in the church, and it sparked the uh, Protestant Reformation. And the Reformers stood upon five indispensable truths. Uncompromising on these five things, our authority is the Scripture alone. That's it. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so our focus for this morning is going to be faith alone and what that faith alone accomplishes. There stood an old courtroom in a land far away where many cases have been tried. There is a a defined and impartial law which every citizen understands. In the courtroom sits a righteous judge who is also very, very good. Well, one day while working in a field, a peasant became enraged with his neighbor over a broken fence and some livestock. And under the gaze of other peasants, killed his neighbor. Of course, he was found out and drug into the old courtroom where the judge, dressed in his long black solemn robe, sat majestically behind a tall bench, gavel resting silently. He trembled before the judge because fresh in his mind was the crime that he committed as well as the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of the judge. His crime was exposed. He was out there. No way to run. No place to hide. Leaving him no choice but to plead guilty. He was guilty. Well, the righteous... And good judge considered the law, he considered the crime before him, he looked at the grieving family of the deceased, and he slowly reached for his gavel. And as he picked it up, he said, I find you guilty of murder. All of your assets will be sold and distributed to this family to only partially cover the excessive loss they have experienced, and I sentence you to death thereafter. And the gavel fell as it echoed through the courtroom. Would you say that the judge was righteous and good? I hope so. I hope you would see that as justice. He is righteous because he sentenced the man according to the fair law of the land. The law was clear, the law was communicated, and it was broken, thus demanding justice. The judge is good because though the man will suffer loss and death, there is justice for the grieving family. And the goodness 
of the law and judge are preserved through the sentence. Imagine the judge saying, you can go free. You can go free. I know what you did was a little bit out of control, but uh, not a big deal. We're going to give you a pass this time. Just go ahead. Try not to do it again. All of us would cry that there was a travesty of justice. There was a mockery of justice. And would also plant the idea inside of us that the judge is not good. He's wrong. He is out of line for doing that. Consider this alternative ending to the story. Before the judge spoke, with gavel still high in the air, the courtroom door flew open. And in burst a young man who was uh, dressed quite well, uh, looked quite wealthy, was prominent in the community, and he shouted, Wait! Wait! And with shortness of breath, he explained to the judge that through his honest and diligent work and prudent investments, that he had accumulated incredible wealth, the greatest in the land, And that on behalf of the convicted man, he would pass all his fortune on to the grieving family in satisfaction of the killer's debt. He pleaded to stand in the place of the killer, thus fulfilling his sentence of death. And by the law of the land, the judge declared the innocent, prominent, young aristocrat guilty. And thereby declared the killer righteous and cleared under the law. The young man's wealth and love was counted as full payment, and the killer was cleared. Has justice been done? Has goodness been preserved? Has radical love and mercy been put on display in this courtroom? All the analogies to the gospel fall short. We try to explain it in different ways, catchy things for people to remember, but the reality is they all fall dramatically short of what God has accomplished in the gospel. For us to be acquitted in the courtroom of God's justice, to be declared as righteous under the law, our sentence must be paid in full and we must be given a perfect record as well. Many years ago, brilliant pastors and theologians got together and did some incredible work. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms came out of this work, and they defined justification like this. Because justification is one of those words that when you hear it, the definition doesn't automatically just fly into your mind. I constantly have to think, okay, what does justification mean again? And so this is how they defined it. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Let's quickly walk through that. Justification is an act of God's free grace. He moves freely by his will. God freely gives justification as a gift. Paul laid this out in Romans 3, 24 and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. God pardons us and accepts us as righteous. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He doesn't count your worst sins against you. You're free. 
Well, that sounds like a travesty of justice. How can he do that? Paul continues, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How is God just for not counting your worst deeds against you? How can he still be a just God? He made Jesus sin in your place. That's how he preserves his justice. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. To impute is to reckon, to credit something to someone's account. So the heart of justification by faith is God crediting Christ's righteousness to our account. Our righteousness is a righteousness that is alien. It is outside of us. It is foreign to us. It is at the right hand of God the Father. It is Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Romans 5, 17 and 19 show very powerfully the concept of imputed righteousness, crediting Christ's righteousness. Follow along with me. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made, right, many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you understand what that says? That through Jesus Christ and his obedience to what God the Father wanted him to do, that through that act of righteousness, through his perfect righteous record before God, we, through faith, can have that counted as ours, credited as ours, imputed to us. Our sin imputed to Christ, he pays for it on the cross, and his perfect record imputed to us, given to us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 talks about God making Jesus our righteousness in Romans 4, 5, Paul says, The one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith says, I can't buy the ticket. I don't have enough money. But I trust in my rich friend because he's covered me already. He's paid for it so I can go in. Ponder these things. They are... Very important. Justification and Christ's righteousness are received by faith alone. How do we get his righteousness? God cannot and will not accept you as righteous unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul showed in Philippians 3.9 that he knew his righteousness was not his own righteousness but it was from God and it depended on faith in Christ. Why do so many people at the end of the day say, it's my good works. I think I've been a pretty good person. Even people within the church get this drastically wrong, thinking that they're somehow good enough that God will accept and allow them 
to have eternal life. Well, the Bible is clear. Does God owe us something? Does he have to accept us? Every major world religion is about man's work to get to God. And that's just not the gospel. The gospel reverses that and it's God working his way and coming to man to accomplish everything that man couldn't accomplish for himself and giving it to them through the grace, through faith. Christianity is so different. God came to us. This is what we believe and it has the opposite effect of this oppression of having to work our way to God somehow. In the gospel, we are liberated We are set free in order to enjoy Christ and all that he gives. Think of how justification by faith changes our lives. Justification by faith produces humility in us because it's not about what we've done but what Christ has done. Justification by faith alone produces love in us because though we're unlovable, We are still loved by God. Justification by faith produces joy in us because we are truly and actually free, no longer condemned under the law. Justification by faith alone produces gratitude in us because someone gave us a tremendous gift. Justification by faith alone produces in us forgiveness of others because we know what Christ had to do for God to forgive us. Justification by faith alone produces mercy in us because we have received infinite mercy. Justification by faith alone produces worship, awe, reverence, and wonder in us because a holy God, perfect in his character, accepts us as righteous because of the imputed righteousness of his Son to us, an impossible reality outside of the grace of God. The other week I had a thought and I posted it on Twitter. I'm not a huge Twitter guy, but I put it on there. It showed up on Facebook, so you might have seen this quote. I'm not accepted by God because I'm a great man. I'm accepted by God because Jesus is a great man. Grace through faith in Christ. That's the essence of what I'm trying to communicate, what God is telling you. We can't walk around with a puffed out chest saying, I'm so great, God, look at me, look at what I did, and because of my really impeccable record, you must accept me and allow me into your heaven to enjoy you. If you've listened to the entire sermon series, which I hope you have, you recognize we're not all we're cracked up to be. We get in because Jesus measured up. He earned it. He went to work and accomplished for us what we couldn't accomplish on our our own. And so true saving faith, and, and at the core, it's saying, I can't, Jesus can. So I'm just getting behind him because he's awesome and he gets it done. He he's like like a Navy SEAL or something. You know, they they go in and they get it done, right? I want to get behind Jesus. He doesn't lose. He doesn't lose. He wins every single time and he gets it done. He executes. And so when we say, it's all him, God, it's all him. And he said, that's the answer. Now you got it. Now you're saved because you trust in Christ. Last thing, do you find it hard to receive gifts? You know, I think some people, it's hard for them to take a gift because what does taking the gift mean for them? I didn't do it. 
I didn't work for this. See, I'm a hard worker, so I'm going to go to work. And if you give me a gift, that means I didn't work for it. I didn't merit it in any way. And so that lessens me a little bit and it exalts you for giving the gift. And so, ah, no, that's all right. I'll go ahead and do it. I'll go ahead and do that job. You don't need to help me. And we have problems because I think we want ourselves to be exalted. But a lavish gift, oh, a lavish gift that comes to us that we receive something that we couldn't earn, that we did nothing to achieve, it doesn't exalt us. It exalts the one who gave the gift. Christ! Can we be a church that exalts in Christ, the giver of the gift? Let's pray that justification by faith leads us to exalt in the giver above the receiver. Let's exalt in King Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving me a certain amount of strength to get through this message, for allowing me to be here with my friends today and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, God, that you help this message to land hard upon our hearts and produce the highest and most awesome joy and contentment in being a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray that we don't point the finger to ourselves saying, look how great my record is and why does God accept me? Because I've done a lot of stuff other people haven't done. Oh, God, kill that spirit in us and help us to point to the cross of Jesus Christ and what he has done and say it is all by the blood of Jesus that I am counted righteous in the sight of an almighty and holy God. Activate faith at Jerusalem for the sake of Christ and the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for bearing with me.